Coming up on Stu Does America, the Black Lives Matter rioters are setting up their own hippie commune inside Seattle. We'll get into that. Amity Schlaes joins us uh, to tell us all about the current protesting and destruction and put it into proper context. And Aaron Cohen of The Blaze stops in to give his take on the latest ways the country is apparently just crumbling into a pile of hot smoking ash. Watch us for free on YouTube. Uh, either head to the URL below or just type stew into their search bar and I'll be the first channel that you see. Uh, keep the show free by clicking on those little thumbs up icons and sharing things. I mean, 44 minutes of free content. All you gotta do is a little click. I mean, it's almost like a socialist program, really, or maybe just a fantastic deal. Also, catch us for free on Facebook and your favorite podcast platform. And consider a uh, subscription over at Blaze TV. Uh, Get everything we have to uh, offer right at our fingertips, right at your fingertips. Uh, Go to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And they will take 10 bucks off the price because I guess they like you. Uh, They're building their own societies in Seattle, so why not here in Dallas? The entry fee to Stutopia is four cans of beans and proof at one point you've slapped a Cuomo brother. Stu does America. Well, if you're like me, every time you go about three or 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, you got flashing lights behind you and you're being pulled over. And then you're taking out the fake ID you had made with your face, but Adam Schiff's name, so that he's constantly getting court summons in cities he was never in. Don't call me a hero. I'm just doing my job. Mm-hmm. Yet, despite the fact that there is a police officer around for every one of my minor traffic violations and identity thefts, somehow these protesters around the country are allowed to get away with everything. I mean, they successfully pulled down a statue of Christopher Columbus. Made by an immigrant, by the way. Hmm. That's not a five minute job. Where are the police to stop this? Or when these super woke protesters to face this statue, this old white guy, uh, Matthias Baldwin, who was a colonizer and a murderer, as you could have seen on that last uh, that last shot there. Um, it was spray painted on the base, except Matthias Baldwin was an abolitionist who argued for the constitutional rights for blacks to vote and founded a school for blacks that he paid for himself. This is the sort of statue a white supremacist would deface. But then these idiots did it anyway. And did they get in trouble? <laughs> oh, I got my speeding ticket, but they didn't get in trouble for that. And how do you know how many? T- I mean, seriously, do you know how many times I've tried to steal an entire cheesecake? Like a thousand times. Yet, looking at the riots, you've got this woman waltzing down the street with a white chocolate raspberry truffle and nobody says anything. Come on. And now we've apparently just started ceding territory to protesters as long as they act douchey enough. I think that's the line. I've been saying this for a while now, but the biggest mistake I think we've seen so far was to allow protesters to take and burn down an actual police precinct. You cannot let that happen under any circumstances. It sends a message to everybody that if you're aggressive enough, you'll get anything you want. And it sent a message to protesters and rioters across the country. Go for it. You might get it. Now in Seattle, the same mistakes are happening again, where the city has just handed over several city blocks to let the protesters take a stab at governing. This area encompasses local businesses uh, affecting people's lives, but (laughs) oh, no matter. Let these crazy kids get their energy out. It's basically an Antifa version of Chuck E. Cheese. 
They're calling it Chaz. Chaz. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, C-H-A-Z, Chaz. It's interesting that this thing started with the destruction of an auto zone, and now here we are witnessing the destruction of another auto zone. It's not exactly clear why Seattle is allowing this to occur, other than just general agreement that capitalism is evil and a desire to send the message to the protesters that we're terrified of you and we will do anything that you want. The major, uh, the mayor basically said, you know, we're having problems with conflicts, uh, so we left. If we leave, you know, no conflicts, right? Despite the fact that there are 500 residential homes in this area who now have no police to protect them. It's not America anymore. It's Chaz. Chaz. This used to be such a ridiculous thought that it would only occur in sketch comedy shows. We're still waiting for information from either side. All we know is that federal agents have surrounded this remote cabin. No word on how many people may be involved or what their demands might be. Dougie? Hey! Get off my land! Get off my land! It's okay, Dougie. You win. Yeah, he's right. You won. The United States government recognizes your independence. Huh? Dougie, you wore us out. It's true. The governor and the president were contacted, and they said they didn't care. If you want to be your own country, that's fine. Really? Yeah, all you got to do is sign here. Just sign this. (laughs) That's it. That's it. It's it's not how it happens. The joke at the time, directed at right-wing separatist groups, yelling, Get off my land! was that the government never just gives in and says, okay, crazy people, the land is yours, I guess. That never happens. Now it is actually happening, and apparently not that big of a deal. I guess it helps if you're a left-wing separatist movement. Though I'm not sure the autonomous zone is going to get a snappy national anthem like this. I decided that my nation needed an anthem, so I hired a lady from the city to come up and write one for me. Yeah! I don't think you're you're going to be singing that one all day. Now, it is a bit of an exaggeration at this point to think of the autonomous zone as its own country, even though many inside of it do. Most of the time, it looks like a really smelly outdoor music festival without talented musicians, but with more drugs. And the left's attempt to say that this is somehow proving that we can defund the police around the country is just asinine. It's a few blocks. As the mayor pointed out, first responders are stationed right outside the area in case something really goes wrong. So most people aren't going to loot a store because what are you going to do? Take the flat screen to another part of your six-block area? But it has been hilarious to watch these morons try to set up a society. It really has. First of all, they, they invited some homeless people to join them, and then bad things happened. Alert two, uh, the homeless people we invited took away all the food at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Uh, we need more food to keep the area operational. Please, if possible, bring vegan meat substitutes. I mean, this is a, how is this real? Fruits, oats, soy products, anything to help us eat. Anything to help us eat, except apparently a cheeseburger. Also, it's been like two days and you've taken over an area with a ton of restaurants. How hungry can you be? Don't worry, though. They are also learning to farm, sort of. As Matt Walsh pointed out, (laughs) the Antifa people in the autonomous zone are taking up farming. They just poured topsoil onto the grass and seem to have simply placed some of the plants onto the soil rather than digging holes and are expecting to keep the plot sufficiently watered with a watering can. 
They should be able to feed themselves for a good hour, though, if all of that works out in a few months. But I don't know if that's going to work out. Uh, I guess what was most surprising was their instant willingness to implement so much of President Trump's agenda. First, build that wall. I mean, they did it like right away. Then you have increased border security. They've got border agents on the border of their autonomous land. And they always accuse Trump and his supporters of being gun-toting warlords. Well, they've had like a couple of days so far, and apparently they already have their own warlord. The... uh, This guy apparently is being called a warlord by other people in the autonomous zone. The other autonomous zone residents aren't feeling all that autonomous. Now, this guy, his name is Raz, because obviously his name is Raz. He doesn't call himself a warlord yet, but he's the recognized police chief of the autonomous zone, which was, of course, created so that there would be no police. Uh, But a power vacuum, vacuum usually gets filled. And in this zone, it was apparently supposedly free of the one person thrusting their will upon another. That was the whole concept. Look what happens when the police chief doesn't like someone's graffiti. It got nasty. It got nasty. It's easy to sit back and make fun of these dopes. And it's also important, I would say. Like in their list of demands, uh, number six and seven, there will be no government, no person or group will have power over another. Number seven, communities will make decisions about how they live and how they make sure that everyone has what they need to live a dignified life. So you have no power over another person, but communities will make the decisions. Well, what happens if you disagree with the community? No one expects you to make sense, of course, if you're in this group, but at least try not to put the things that directly disagree with each other right next to each other on the list. Like make it like number two and number nine, not six and seven. But the temptation to solely mock them is not a good one. And I mean, it's definitely good to mock them, but not solely to mock them. I have their full list of demands here and you have to go over some of them. They're insane. Seattle Police Department and attached court system are beyond reform. We do not request reform. We demand abolition. We demand reparations for victims of police brutality in a form to be determined, which I guess is like the reparations blank check. Then you've got we demand the city of Seattle and the state government to release any prisoner serving time for a marijuana related offense and expunge the related conviction, which is interesting. Like what if they murdered 25 people, but they were high? Maybe they get out. Uh, we demand the replacement of current criminal justice system and the creation of a restorative, transformative accountability program as a replacement for imprisonment. Sounds wonderful. We demand that the police department, between now and the time of abolition in the near future, empty its lost and found and return property owned by the city. Seems a little questionable. I love this. We demand the degentrification of Seattle, starting with rent control, because rent controls worked out well when it's been tried. We demand hospitals and care facilities of Seattle employ black doctors and nurses specifically to help care for black patients. The color of the skin of the doctor, is that what's important to you? We demand that people of Seattle seek out and proudly support black-owned business businesses. Look, stop worrying about the color of skin. That's what got us into the problem in the first place that you're complaining about. Just communist nonsense, and it's the same stuff you saw at Occupy Wall Street. There's this weird anti-capitalist thing that happens when what they really want is capitalism. They supposedly want a safe community with everything that people need, where people can flourish. That's capitalism. 
It's not perfect, but it's as close as anyone has ever been able to get. And for the very profit-based uh, show, South Park, as they illustrated. We don't need corporations. We don't need money. This can become a commune where everyone just helps each other. Yeah, we'll have one guy who, like, who like makes bread. And one guy who, like, looks out for other people's safety. You mean like a baker and a cop? No, no, can't you imagine a place where people live together and, like, provide services for each other in exchange for their services? Yeah, it's called a town. You kids just haven't been to college yet. But just you wait. This thing is about to get huge. <laughs> I bet it is. Ask anyone around uh, just a few decades ago to compare their lives and society to the one we have today. And if they're actually honest, they'll admit it. This crazy utopia everyone is always yearning for is a lot closer than you think. This message and this civilization are brought to you by capitalism. Let me tell you about my experience with Fast Blast. Um, look, I got to admit, put on a bunch of weight during the COVID thing. It happened to a lot of people. Happened to me. Uh, you saw it happen live on the air. Wasn't that wonderful? Um, you need something to turn that around. And I feel like you need something that turns it around fast. We can sit here and try to shave 12 calories a day off of all of our meals and act like we're being healthy. And at the end of the week, what do we lose? A pound? I can't do it like that. I need to have faster movement. That's why I love Fast Blast. Fast Blast has these uh, great smoothies. Don't we have one? Yeah, here we go. They come in these little pouches. Yeah, these little, little, little tiny easy pouch. You can just bring it around, uh, pop it whenever you're hungry on fasting days or whenever you just need a little snack. It's really good. It's, it, it tastes really good. There's not like a crazy chemical aftertaste. None of that stuff's going on. Uh, you have one every couple of hours on a fasting day, lots of liquid. You are uh, satisfied for the day. And it helps on other days, too, when you're just trying to eat better. The smoothies come in a, uh, the, the, the easy pouch that you just saw. No scale, no calorie counting, no carb counting. Do your own homework. Make sure you like this. It's, it's right for you. Fastblast.com slash blaze is a great place to get you started. Give you all the information. You can get the smoothies if you want in there, too. Fastblast.com slash blaze. Use the fa- uh, slash blaze part because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And go to fastblast.com for a healthier and a happier and a smaller you. Uh, here's a dumb new take spreading through social media. The riots that started two weeks ago and are more or less still going on never actually took place. And if they did, it was all the police's fault. If that irks you the slightest bit, I would advise completely avoiding Twitter because that's actually one of the more digestible theories bouncing around. Today's guest, New York Times bestselling author, historian and former editorial board at the Wall Street Journal, Amity Schles, can not only confirm that, yes, there actually were riots, uh, but she can also dive into the nuances and history of riots in America. Her book, Great Society and New History, examines the riots that took place throughout the 1960s when, thank God, Twitter did not exist. Amity, thank you so much for coming on the program. I know there is a... Uh, it's it's an interesting thing we're going through right now. And I think a lot of times when when things seem so chaotic and out of control, it feels like it's the first time it's ever happened. But people are talking about the 60s. We've had unrest like this before. What are the similarities and the differences uh, compared to what we're going through today? Well, one big similarity is idealism. We wanted you know, we didn't call it the good society, the Mm. Lyndon Johnson program. We called it the great society. Mm. Uh, You know, the idea that you can get to great, that's lovable. Um, Johnson swore that he would cure poverty, C-U-R-E, cure, not Uh make poverty less. 
And in fact, notwithstanding the spending, the decrease in poverty slowed down. America's always getting richer, so poverty will reduce, but it did not go away. And many of the Johnson's programs enshackled people. I mean, this was the period when we began to have food stamps. Another revision uh, that's important to know is, you know, people say Richard Nixon was the law and order president, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Richard Nixon was elected on law and order subsequent to riots. But in fact, he expanded the welfare state. He he, uh, in some programs were expanded faster than Johnson had been expanding them, most particularly food stamps. So, um, you know, there's just a lot to absorb in the 60s. And you have to go back to the primary sources to see what really happened. Yeah. You know, I I think one of the interesting things you talk about is our order of events. A lot of times we get a a chicken and egg situation out of order. And it it seems like that's kind of what happens here. We think the way we're talking about now is like, well, maybe we'll uh, defund the police and we'll invest more in communities and that will solve this problem. And, you know, it it happened. That's what they tried to do back uh, with Lyndon Johnson. Well, it's not really the way that that happened. Can you lay that out? Because it's a fascinating timeline. Well, there there was unrest in cities in the early 60s and before in the United States, but not giant unrest uh, of the kind uh, you were you would see later, the famous Watts riot. So um, then it's now the government turned to community action. Community action sounds nice. I mean, what can be wrong with community action, <laughs> right. you say? Um, and let's us more they, that more or less federally funded community action sidelined local authorities, mayors, police. But unfortunately, community action fen- funded by Washington uh, didn't always help the towns and it created um, it institutionalized protest communities. That, that's precisely what it did. So mm. if you're a protester, you might have been just a protester, but suddenly you were paid to be a social work protester. And they the payments were large. This was a billion dollar bill, which sounded like a lot. <laughs> um, and so towns uh, would get money and it wouldn't even go to the mayors. The mayors were outraged, as I describe in the book, in L.A., uh, Mayor Yorty, for example, and fight over the money um, sometimes led to riots. Watts being the famous riot, the terrible riot, case in point, there were fights over how the community action money would be spent. And that was a very violent riot. So once you have money flowing, then you also have reason for conflict. And um, President Johnson was very committed to civil rights in the United States, but also to easing life in the North economic life as well. And not only had he signed and led the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, but also this community action law, which is called the Economic Opportunity Act. And um, Johnson was a man you could always reach. He was Mr. Telephone. You've seen the pictures. Um, After the Watts riot, in the first few days, his staff couldn't reach him because he went into a giant pout over his own failure to keep cities calm, to give America hope. Um, it was a cycle of more and more spending without result and with disappointment. Emily, how much do you see when you look at uh, Lyndon Johnson, how much do you, of his civil rights activism do you see as opportunistic or is, was it a deep held belief? I mean, he certainly had issues that we would now really frown upon when it comes to race. Um, was he was was this a real part of him or was just this the the master politician in him? 
I do believe it was a real part of them. Some of it, however, was misguided. So um, if you divide the laws, I'll take the Civil Rights Act, I'll take the Voting Rights Act, I'll take some of his other laws as good and helpful and important for the United States. We'll have more with Amity Schlaes in just a moment. We're back with Amity Schlaes. The book is A Great Society. And uh, Amity, I want to take us to the economy a little bit here. Well, and, and still tying into what we've been talking about here. Um, in the 60s, we had a lot of uh, civil unrest. Um, and then we also have the Great Depression. Today, we're kind of uh, facing both of those things kind of at the exact same time. You just happen to be an expert on both of these topics. What can we learn from looking back at history about what we're facing today? Well, the period to which um, the current period is analogous is probably the 70s, when we realized that inflation could happen and that unemployment could go up, particularly when there are a lot of benefits paid. Um, The 70s were a purgatorial spongy period, I would say, when there was both inflation and unemployment. And uh, America's future did not look as bright. There was no morning in America. So that's important to note. And some of the 60s actions contributed directly to that, the overspending, but also I I would say with great affection, the policy of the unions. For example, the union leader, Walter Ruther of the UAW, it's an unfamiliar name now, but we heard it every night on the television in the old days. It said, let's make the UAW about expanding social democracy. Let's charm the youth. Let's um, work very hard on civil rights. That was all right. But let's focus on that sort of as the one thing we're going to do. And therefore, Ruther, who represented uh, workers at all three big automakers, overlooked the fact that he was driving wages too high and that Toyota would step in. So there's a profile of Toyota in my book stepping in when Ruther's busy with uh, um, basically agreeing to uh, forcing wages that were too high. Ford, by the way, went along. The automakers went along. Um, So we rendered America uncompetitive in this period due to our preoccupation with worker rights in that instance. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really fascinating thing, because the balance of trying to, uh, to to balance civil rights and the economy is difficult. We've seen a little bit of that now with everything from what we're going through now, as well as coronavirus, trying to figure out what is the right um, a, a way to, to to have these things sort of work together to save to do the best things for, for people, but also to keep the economy going. Um, when we look at this, when we look back at the Great Depression, we see numbers today that at some levels are as scary as some of those times. Um, you, you wrote in the, the Forgotten Man, of course. Um, can you, is, is there an analogous look at any of these eras? I mean, the 70s certainly had a similarity, but with this one big event, with the possibility of a quick rebound, is that even something we should be looking at? Yes. Well, in the seven, um, right now we have depression level unemployment numbers. That was what the depression was famous for. Unemployment higher than 10%. Mm-hmm. So insofar as we've had that, that's a depression-like snapshot. It's not wrong to say it. But one unemployment number does not a depression make. It's important to know what policy did cause the Great Depression. That policy was steady, wrong-headed government experiments in intervention. 
So imagine if the recovery is a person. Every year, the re- recoveries make choices. Every year, the recovery chose to stay away um, for a different reason. But overall, one could say, as the chief economist of Chase Bank did at the period, the problem is the government's attempt to play God in the economy um, and then to play God more vigorously when the government fails. And you see that um, nowadays, too, you know, one stimulus package isn't enough. So let's do let's mm-hmm. double down um, the U.S. All things being equal, the U.S. economy will recover, but we have to respect uh, market. One of the very important things that economists sometimes won't discuss, um, Samuel Leo Hanyan, I'm thinking of, is that the labor price in the 30s was too high. That's perverse. Wait, we had unemployment. How could the labor price be high? Because you, um, they had the idea that the more you pay the worker, he'll buy back the car. It wasn't working. Instead, people didn't get back their old job because the companies couldn't afford to pay everyone those new wages um, that were mandated by union law, for example, or other laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you have such great perspective on all this. this is, is, it's always amazing to talk to you. Um, let me give you let me go to one of your other books here, because I, I would I'd love to have you on for I could do a whole show with you on Calvin Coolidge. Um, you know, I think he's such a fascinating um, figure. Uh, and you wrote the, the book on him. Um, I look at uh, Donald Trump president. He's done some things I like, some things I don't like. Uh, but it doesn't even feel like someone like Calvin Coolidge would even be able to. How do we get another Calvin Coolidge? How does that happen again? To me, at this point in our society, it doesn't even seem like it's possible. Oh, I believe it's possible. Unfortunately, it might be after trouble, right? Mm. So we overspent in World War One. We were fighting a war and we had a strong progressive impulse. And we finally decided that was enough because we had trouble. We had inflation after World War One. And so suddenly common sense was in fashion and Harding and Coolidge. Coolidge was, of course, a vice presidential candidate in 1920, became president only because, unfortunately, the president died. But Harding and Coolidge campaigned for normalcy. And when I was growing up, Stu, I thought that was a terrible word, normalcy. You want everyone to be normal, to be a cog? Mm. We're all different and special, right? But what they meant by normalcy is a normal business environment that suggests that business um, can operate without too much intervention from government. Business uh, To operate, business doesn't need a perfect life. It just needs the environment to be not too bad. Right? Mm. And in the 20s, um, Harding and then Coolidge, especially Coolidge, said taxes are going only one way down. It's going to be um, we're not going to get in your way in too many areas. Good luck. We have hope for you. And business did perform very strongly in the 1920s. And fortunately, in high school, mostly what they learn about the 20s is the Great Gatsby. Another example yeah. of history, um, not quite right. And we get the feeling the market crashed. Um, That's what um, F. Scott Fitzgerald is describing. Indeed, he's describing a crash, but it's the crash of the early 20s. Great Gatsby was published well before Mm. the Great Depression, Mm. um, well before the crash of 29. So um, the 20s were a real living decade. They really did roar. It was not just a bubble in a champagne glass. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Amity Schles, I would sit here and tell you to to buy uh, her book. Just buy all of her books. They're all fantastic. She does a great job telling these stories from history that people just don't tell you. Uh, Amity Schles, the book we're talking about today mostly was The Great Society. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm honored to be here. All right. Thank you so much. We're going to be back in a second.
We're all looking for ways to save money, especially now. Uh, when's the last time you looked at how much money you're spending on car insurance? Nobody, nobody even thinks about it. You do it one time and you never think about it again. Homeowners insurance, you do that, I think, when you buy your house and you never think about it again. Check out Gabby. Uh, you see about getting a lower rate and for the exact same coverage you already have. It's the market working for you. These are good things. We just learned this. These are good things. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of current, uh, current, your current coverage and 40 of the top insurers. You know, progressive, nationwide, travelers, all state, all the big ones. Um, I know that I, uh, I did this with my car insurance. All you do is you give them the information and it's not like you're guessing at the numbers. They give you the exact policy you have. Can you save money with that policy? You know what they told me? No, you have a, you have a good you have a good rate. So don't worry about it. That's really peace of mind. I mean, they could try to sell me on some bigger policy. They didn't do that. They just said, hey, here you go. And it's not the people doing it. It's just a computer just telling me. They know This is why they built it like this. They built it to save you money. They save $825 per year on average if, you're, if you go through Gabby. And if they can't find you savings like, they did, they, uh, that, you know, like my situation, they'll let you know. So you can relax and know that you have the best rate out there. It's great. And they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. It's free to check your rate, and there is no obligation. Take two minutes right now. See how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash stew. G-A-B-I dot com slash stew. Make sure you go to slash stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Gabby dot com slash stew. Aaron Cullen, staff writer for The Blaze, joins me now. The news is moving, honestly, too fast for me to even follow at this point. So how does an actual journalist like yourself handle all of this? Uh, well, you got to find some time to turn it off because you'll go crazy. So on the weekends, I just disconnect from Do you it. really? Yeah, I try to because it, it's a wear on you. This stuff, this new cycle is heavy. Um, it's personal in some ways. And so if you don't take some time to disconnect from it, it'll drive you crazy. Yeah, I think it is driving people crazy. Uh, like, I feel like, you know, like I, luckily, I don't have any friends. Um, but people who I know that have friends are getting in fights with them. They're all unfriending each other. There's the constant battling. I don't. I. I don't understand it. It doesn't seem possible that people can make it through their daily lives, but then act this way on social media. I don't understand. Yeah, I have a very select few people who I will talk with politics about, and mm. everybody else I will just avoid it like the plague. Even <laughs> if they ask me about it because they know what I do, there are certain people you know you just cannot engage in that way because it's not going to go well. Yeah, and it's tough because I will get you know people who watch The Blaze, who listen to you know the Glenn Beck radio program, spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff and caring about it. And, and at some point, sometimes when I just say, like, I just don't even think about this anymore, it almost seems flippant. Like, it's, it, these are important things, right? Um, and a lot of times when um, you talk about not wanting to engage in all of those things outside of work, it sounds as if you're just abandoning the cause as soon as you get out, you know, off the air. And it's not that. It's just that at some point you have to have those windows of normal life. You can't be... A, a constant activist or you wind up like the people trying to take over Seattle. Yeah, I think if, to be effective in making any sort of positive change, you have to be able to recharge yourself in order to get back in there and do good work. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to lose perspective. You're going to lose sight of things and you're going to be lashing out, making rational decisions. Yeah, um, I, I kind of wanted to go. I, I wanted to talk to you because you had you tweeted something I thought was was interesting. And I like to talk to people who actually I don't always know where they stand on every single issue. It seems more and more rare these days. Um, and you brought up a, a, an interesting point about um, you tweeted a, a string from some I think it was a reporter in Chicago from from a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, talking about how conservatives uh, the, the terminology, I think, was like use Chicago as a, as a bludgeon, uh, essentially. C can you kind of take us through that? Because 
it's I mean, we've all talked about Chicago before. It does have a real problem as far as crime goes, but maybe not always the, the, the most simple point to make for conservatives. Yeah, it's unfortunate that sometimes you see when a black person is killed by police and that becomes the news cycle. You hear a lot of what about Chicago? What about the murders in Chicago? What about how many people were shot in Chicago this past weekend? As if to say, you weren't mad about that, so why are you mad about this, black, this one black person who got killed by a police officer when 60 people got shot just last weekend and you didn't say anything about it? Yeah. And I think that's a really unhelpful way to bring up Chicago or whatever city that you're dealing right. with, because like you said, it is a real problem and those are real people dealing with that problem. Uh, but when you use it only to silence people who are talking about a thing that you don't want them to talk about, you're not serving the, to solve the problem in Chicago and you're, you're not serving to solve the problem that we're dealing with now. It just creates division. And if you don't, I don't hear people saying that so often when there's not a racial crisis in the nation. I don't hear people saying, what about Chicago then? Uh, there are people working on those issues in Chicago. Black people do care about um, violence in Chicago. It's not like we don't care about it just because you don't see it on CNN, like blown out 24-7. Right. There's actually people in those cities that are dealing with crime problems that are working to solve those problems. And I think that gets lost a little bit when we just frame Chicago like just the stain on the nation that's beyond <laughs> yeah. repair. Like, oh, that's just those people who kill each other all the time. Instead of looking at it like, wait a minute, what about Chicago? What can we do as conservatives, as Republicans, to get in there and make things better? Because we're talking about a place that's so overwhelmingly Democrat and a place that I don't know, think they've had a, a Republican mayor since like the 30s, a place that's just so dominated by Democrats. And that's not it's clearly not working. What can Republicans do to actually make a change there instead of just pointing to it and saying the Democrats are bad? Look what they're doing in their city. We could be part of the solution. I think that's a better conversation to have. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think it's used a, a couple of different ways. And I think part of it is you're right, almost like a deflection tactic, right? Like, oh, yeah, well, I, you're saying you have a problem. Well, look, you have more problems mm -hmm. than you're not even addressing. I, I think, too, part of it, though, and I, cause I, I've certainly made that point at some level. And I I'm think, directing this toward you. you know, I know. <laughs> I, I think, though, at least when I'm making it, my my criticism is, first of all, that there's much there's a, it's not that's not the only point. It is something you could point out. Mm -hmm. The reason I do it is it more of a criticism of the media and the way they handle it. It's not a criticism of a black journalist who's in the middle of this, you know, fighting it down on a daily basis or an activist who's who really cares about this. It's people like Chris Cuomo who don't care about it at all mm -hmm. and will only utilize it to their uh, when it is in the news cycle um, and will act as if they're, you know, because, I mean, look, any police officer who does something like what happened to George Floyd is, is a problem. And as an individualist, which is really my core ideology, mm -hmm. um, I uh, it, it pisses me off for that reason. Um, when it turns into these ridiculous sort of news cycles and it it turns into this it becomes bigger than all of these other things. I mean, you know, we've talked about it before. I know you've gone through the stats as well. It's something like 0.1% of black people that are murdered come from police officers. I wish it was 0%, like right. it should be zero. But I mean, it, it, you're, you're really missing, when you, when you make an, uh, an argument like this, uh, and like the one we're having nationally, um, about police officers, it is really, it is a part of the issue, but it's a small slice. And I think that is what's frustrating about the media coverage of it. it. It feels like they're just brushing over the big bulk of everything just so they can pick off this little slice that they can get through that, that fits their agenda. And that's true. And I think one thing as conservatives, I think we have to be careful about 
is not fighting the media so hard yeah. that the actual communities that we're talking about in these conversations get used as collateral damage sort of in that discussion mm -hmm. because the media will blow things out of proportion and they will use things for an agenda. But in the process of trying to fight that narrative, we, we sometimes sort of sweep like Chicago up in it. It's just like, yeah. oh, look at these people who are just killing each other. And we're saying, you're, we're, we're attacking the media and not addressing the problem. And you can, you can criticize the media because they should be criticized when they do that. But in the process, we have to find some way to sort of balance it out and say, the media is not the primary concern here as well. Should, the primary concern should be the people mm -hmm. who are living in those places, suffering under these policies, suffering under these this high crime, this high violence, and what can be done about them. And it, it's hard. We have to do two things at once. We have to fight to balance out imbalanced media narratives, and we also have to see, okay, how politically and how as a media organization for ourselves or as reporters or whatever platform we have, how can we also turn attention and resources towards solving these problems and not just allowing them to exist so that we can use them to fight against the media. Right, right, right. And I should say, when I say I'm being critical of the media, I mean you directly. Yes, yeah, for specifically. sure. I am the mainstream media. Uh, yeah, okay, I that's fake you. news. That's you are. <laughs> um, uh, let's go back to a point you made here in a, a second ago, because you're talking about we should actually do something to try to fix these communities, help these communities. Um, but you point out, Chicago hasn't <laughs> elected a mayor that's a Republican since 1930. We can say all the ideas that we want. If we never have an opportunity to do anything, Nothing's going to get done. I mean, I think you look around the country and you say there's a lot of areas that uh, conservatives have been leaders of. And generally speaking, they're pretty well run. You look at major cities. And I know it's a little there's some distinctions here that I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out. But as right. broad strokes, you know, conservatives uh, run areas that are typically areas people want to live in. And cities uh, have big crime rates, big poverty rates, and they've been run for Democrats for 50, 60 years. How do you change that? I think it comes down to our Republicans really competing in these areas that are, again, have been just surrendered as this is a Democratic stronghold. Yeah. We can't get in there. Have we have we stopped competing there and just said, you know what, we'll just leave you to your Democratic mess and you can deal with that? Because I think that's a little bit of what's happened is that now these people are living in these places and they have the choice to just vote for Democrats and they're voting in these unopposed races or there's not a legitimate conservative candidate in a lot of these places. I don't think it's the case that you look at Chicago and they've got 50 city council people and all of them are Democrats or independents. I don't think it's the case that if you really invested over time in that community as a, as a party, as a Republican party, that you couldn't win some of those seats. Yeah. You know, I think it's some. It, some. I'm not saying that you can win all of it. I'm not saying you can win it the next election cycle but are you investing in that over time to try to make progress in there and i think some of the, some of that's what's happened is that we've just kind of said okay well they, they're voting democrats so we just got to stay out of there but politics is about competing and saying my ideas are the ideas that can help make people's lives better and so even if it's hard even if i'm not going to win everything i'm going to go in there and bring those ideas to this community and i'm going to invest in that and i think that's what we need to be doing and there are some good organizations that do attempt to do that. And I think that's important. It's just tough. Like I know from a political perspective, you've got a talented young politician. You're going to run them in a, in a district where 92 percent of people are voting for Democrats. Like, well, it's a waste. Right. Like that's the mindset. And I understand it because you're then that person never wins and never gets into office. Um, it's it's a challenge. And, and I and I think, you know, Trump got a lot of heat and he said this several times, which is basically like, you know, you guys have been talking about these problems for 60 or 70 years. You've been trying the same thing. Why not try something else? At least it's different. Yeah. I, that, to me, at this point, would be somewhat of a compelling argument if I were living in a city where I was complaining about, you know, 20 percent poverty rates and such. It does not seem to connect, though. There's, there, there, it, does, it seems like there's a mental block 
on anybody who's a Republican from having a chance to win in most of these areas. And, you know, there's a chicken egg thing going on, and I don't know how to solve that. Yeah. It, again, it's, it's a thing that will take years of investment of sending Republicans and sending Republican resources into these places and earning people's trust and showing them that you're not what they think you are from the media. Mm-hmm. And over time, if you can slowly prove to them by getting on school boards, by getting on city councils, by enacting just some policies that might lift regulations that make lives easier, that yeah. might uh, give them access to better schools, that might improve their education, that might improve, improve the unemployment rate. These things that contribute to the violence in these cities where you see high murder rates, if you can slowly start to show people that, hey, conservative ideas are, are the things that can help you and sort of start to fight against this perception of the Republican Party that a lot of black people have, a lot of minorities have, that it's a party that's not for minorities. Mm-hmm. We have to somehow start working to show people that conservatism is not about race. It's about a set of ideas that can give people the tools and the, the freedom and the ability to live better lives and to have better communities. And again, that's that's a long term investment. And I think a lot of times we want the quick fix and we're forced to look at, OK, we got to pool our resources for the next election. And so we, right. by, by necessity in some ways, we have to be short-sighted because you have to win now. But also there's a long-term game that has to be played if you want to sort of shift things. Otherwise, it's always gonna be you're looking at San Francisco and the homelessness or Chicago and the violence or Baltimore and whatever's going on there. You, you're gonna have that. All but of it you, in Baltimore, that's what's all going of it, on yeah. There. yeah. But if you want to change it, and that's the thing, is like if you're a person that cares about the violence that goes on in Chicago, so if you're bringing it up now because of George Floyd, Either you care about it and you want to see some something done about it or you're just using it. But if you care about it, then you have to start looking at, okay, how can we start competing there so that conservatism can sort of break some of these stereotypes and spread to places where it needs to be? Uh, 30 more seconds. Um, You brought up uh, the next election, which is what everyone's kind of talking about. We're getting to that point. Two schools of thought, I think, right now for people who are looking at this seriously. One, Trump is really far behind and in real trouble. Two, Trump is behind in the polls, but he hasn't really even started campaigning yet. No one's even talking about Biden. This election hasn't started. It's too easy, too early to take anything out of these polls. Where are you on that? I think it's too early to take things out of the polls. I always look at these polls and say the Democrat is going to have the popular vote. So these national polls will show him up. And that gap is probably not as big as you think it is. Mm-hmm. I think Trump is going to be OK just in terms of if circumstances improve. If we get past riots, if we get past COVID-19 he, and the economy starts to stabilize and improve, he'll get the credit for that and he'll improve in the polls. I don't think it's a lock in, a lock that he'll win, but I, I don't think he's needs to be really concerned right now, especially right now. with the mm-hmm. kind of campaign Biden is running, which is not a campaign at all. It's hiding. He's not bringing anything <laughs> strong to the table. No. I don't think it's as dire a situation as some are saying. All right, Aaron Colon, uh, staff writer for The Blaze. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, catch Aaron on the show and News and Why It Matters. We were on earlier today. Check that out as well. It's a lot of fun. Uh, BlazeTV.com is the place to go. BlazeTV.com slash stew. Make sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Back in a second. It's, of course, important to uh, have a face covering for COVID-19, but it's almost more important to protect yourself from Andrew Cuomo. That's very difficult to do if you happen to live in a nursing home, as we found out, sadly. But if you go to studosmerch.com, you can have the uh, Andrew Cuomo is awful mask, and that pretty much guarantees Andrew Cuomo will never talk to you. And that's a really good thing. I think that's probably the best thing you can hope for in life. studosmerch.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Good night.